Um, if you're using the Pew Bibles provided, that's on page 48. Um, I grieve that we're finishing up Genesis today because the page numbers for the Pew Bibles will never be so easy to remember again. Um, unfortunately, once Exodus, it starts over and all the, it's just not, not so close anymore. But uh, this morning, as we contemplate here, we come again to the end of the book of Genesis. You know, chapter 50 uh, sort of cleans it up. But here, we're, we're at the end of the narrative of Genesis. We're at the end of the story of the beginning. You know, beginnings are very important. You've all, you've all heard the expression, half begun, well begun is half done. Right? You, you, when you start something out, it gives you an indication of how everything else is going to go. Have you ever had a conversation with someone, and you knew from the way that conversation started what kind of conversation you were about to have? If you are watching a movie or reading a book, the beginning is, tell, is going to tell you what kind of movie or what kind of book you're reading. It's going to lay the foundation for everything. And in that sense, the book of Genesis has the seed plot for the entire Bible in it. Everything in the Bible finds its roots here in Genesis. And so it's so important. And you say, well, uh, you better think it's important. You've been preaching on it for a year. Um, so I guess I do. But on and off, on and off, not continuous year. But we, we've spent a good part of the last year, probably six or eight months, if we take out the other series that we've done, going through line by line, verse by verse, through the book of Genesis and studying these main ideas. But as we come today, what we're going to do is we're going to look in Genesis 49, and then we're going to look in the Revelation, and we're going to see some of the ways that these things are fulfilled ultimately. But because I want you to really understand what we're looking at, I want to recap some of what's happened. You know, the book of Genesis is really broken into two parts, chapter 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 50. Now, chapters 1 through 11 covers thousands of years and many generations. Chapters 1 through 11 goes through and tells us all about the people from the creation of the world up until the birth of Abraham. Now, chapter 12 through 50 tells the story of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Joseph. Now, if the Bible tells all of creation in one chapter, and then tells all of human history up to this one man in 10 chapters. And then spends 38 chapters on this man to his great-grandchildren. Where do you think the emphasis of God is? <laughs> now, in fact, I'll go further than that. I will say the Bible devotes 11 chapters to the creation of the world and everything up to the birth of Abraham. And then devotes 65 books to the children of Abraham to the legacy of Abraham. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 left us with a big problem, didn't it? It left us with a problem of exile. God created everything perfect, put Adam and Eve in the garden, and gave them the responsibility of tending it. But they were tempted because Satan came to them and said, you shall be like God. That is the same temptation that people come to you with. People come to you and say, you need to be the one to decide how you're going to spend your money. You need to be the one to decide how you're going to spend your time. You need to be the one to decide how you're going to live. You need to be your own God. And in our society, that is deeply, deeply entrenched. And there's, uh, you know, we go through the hot button social issues, but 
Uh, when someone wants to have an abortion, what is it? I want to be God. I want to be master over life and death. You, you, we look at uh, the increasing designer baby phenomenon. They said, they said it was just it was something that would never actually happen. Then you read in the New York Times just a couple weeks ago, around the world, it's happening. You know, China has an entire lost generation of boys from selective abortion. And now they're looking at actually genetically modifying babies. They, go, they take the embryo and they test these, this selection of embryos to figure out who has the genes you want, and they destroy all the ones except the one that you want. So they may kill 35 babies and allow one to live. And of course, you know, that's when somebody is born uh, by in vitro fertilization. That's what they do is they, they produce lots of embryos and kill the ones that are not desirable. Those are human beings killed because they don't meet, more, they don't meet your standards. That's horrifying. <laughs> but that is not new. I want to be God. I want to be in charge. You want to be God. You want to set the own terms for your own life. The assisted suicide movement, I'm sure some of you have seen that in Europe, they have just had the first teenager use assisted suicide. Because they say personal autonomy. They say you are your own God. You decide when you want to die. Now, of course, when they start pitching assisted suicide, what do they do? They say, well, it's for people that are going to die anyway. It's just allowing them to die with dignity. Then you go a little farther and you say, well, there are these adults that have got incurable mental diseases. They just have, they're not, it's not going to kill them, but they have no quality of life. And then you keep on following that slippery slope. And you end up with laws that say that kids can request suicide. Now, at this point, in all the places in Europe that allow children to uh, request suicide, it has to be with their parents' consent. But if you don't need your parents' consent to have an abortion, how long do you think you will need your parents' consent for assisted suicide? Once we have decided that we are God, there's no peace. You go farther, you know, you look at um, on a different kind of social issue, you look at warmongering, right? You look at these countries that want to just invade and take over other places. It's because they think they should decide how the world should be set up. They think they ought to be God. You know, you, you took like at uh, Vladimir Putin being the clearest example of that right now. Thinks he ought to run the universe. And then, of course, the big issue of our time is that uh, Jesus says from the beginning God created them male and female, right? And now, of course, the big issue in the United States is I ought to be able to decide my own gender. I ought to be able to decide who I am. But I'm not interested in the legal side of that. I'm interested in the heart side of that, that people think they ought to be their own God. Say no decision should be made without my consent. I should determine everything about me from cradle to grave. Now, you say that doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound so bad until you realize it's treason. If God is the true king, then to rebel against him is treason. You don't have any rights. So Genesis begins with a rebellion. God sets up a perfect kingdom. He is the king of that rebellion. He's the king of that kingdom. It be, a rebellion begins, and that rebellion has not stopped. 
The reason many people won't become Christians is because fundamentally their attitude is no one is going to tell me what to do. Not even God. And if you don't think there's a little bit of that in your heart, you don't know you very well. If you don't think there's a whole lot of that in your heart, you don't know you very well. We want to shake our fists and we want to be in charge. So you wonder what, where all these other issues come from. Why, why do Christians get so caught up on some of these things? It's because it comes down to the fundamental issue of the heart. It's not about behavior. Christians are not interested in behavior modification. You know, behavior modification is the business of the government. That's not our job. I don't care about how you live if your heart is still broken. And so from that moment of the fall, the hearts of men and women were shattered. God tried to give them, starting out with just that basic command, don't eat from this tree. And they could not help to follow that one command. But God shows mercy to them. Don't you remember that? God says in Genesis 3.15 to Eve, or to the serpent, that you, I'll put enmity between thee and the seed of the woman. And he shall bruise thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. said, between the children of Eve, uh, and, and not named Eve at that time, between the children of the woman and the serpent, who was Satan, there was going to be a fight. But even in Genesis chapter 3, God said, the child of the woman is going to be victorious. It's going to hurt him, but he is going to crush your head once and for all. And then do you know what, Eve did, what Adam did in the very next verse? He named his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Do you know what that was? That was a declaration of faith. He said, God, I believe that she is the mother and that you're going to send a child who's going to crush the head of the serpent. People say, how were people saved in the Old Testament? God said, I'm going to send a child, and he is going to crush Satan under his feet. Adam believed that promise, and then you know what happened right after that. God gave them a coat of skin to show they were covered by the blood. From the very beginning, every time anybody is saved in the Bible, it's because they have faith in the promise of the one who is to come, or in our case, the faith in the promise of the one who came. Now, as we work through that then, they leave the garden, and they live in exile. The Bible is a book of homelessness in many ways. They lose their garden. They wander. Their uh, son, Cain, becomes a wanderer and a vagabond on the earth, rejected by earth and rejected by heaven. Wanders, wanders, and wanders. If you ever feel like you have no place, the Bible understands you. You say, I just feel like I can't go home. Nothing is like it used to be. You, know, you go back to your hometown and you say, it's just not like it was. You say, I don't have anywhere to go. The Bible understands you. Because of sin, you're always foreign. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from other people. We have no peace because of it. We're wanderers. So it goes through, and it tells this story of wandering. And as they scatter, they decide they don't want to wander, of course, and they come back together, and they say, let's build our own tower. Let's make for ourselves a tower, a place, and a name. They build up a tower, Babel. They say, we're going to reach up to the heavens. And God, of course, says, if they do this, nothing will be prevented from them. What, what, what that means is if they feel like they can do this, then their pride will make them think they can do anything. And they'll never come to me. So God destroys the tower, scatters the people, changes the languages. You would think, well, that'll, that'll solve the problem. Of course it did. 
And before that, of course, we had the flood where God said things are so wicked that I have to destroy everything. I have to destroy everybody except eight people. Because if I don't, these eight people are going to be destroyed also. There's going to be nobody. He said, I have to destroy almost everything to have any hope of redemption. It's like the flood was God's chemotherapy. He said, I'm going to wipe everything out except a spark. And through that spark, through Adam, through Seth, through Noah, God finally, in the midst of this world, has got one man, Abram. We read about Abram. God told Abram, leave your father, leave your home, leave everything you know, and go to a place that I will show you. He said, he takes a childless old man, and he says, you are my hope for the world. God does not work like we work. If you saw the kind of world that God had, you saw the kind of problem God had, you would say, I'm just going to destroy it and start all over. That's what I would do. But God said, I'm going to have a remnant. That remnant here is Abram. He says, Abram, leave everything you know. Walk by faith. And I've got a promise for you. You know that promise that he made, that he would have a son, that uh, he would have a land, and that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. So you have that promise coming through. He finally has a son, Isaac. He has to even be willing to offer Isaac up. Jesus says, if you don't love me more than father, mother, brother, you, you don't, you know, you're not worthy of me. You cannot be my disciple. He comes and he's willing to offer him. On one hand, showing for us once and for all, God would never allow human sacrifice. And two, showing us something very important. What did God do? He sent a ram caught in the thicket. He had a substitute. There's a substitute again. There was a substitute for Adam. And now there's a substitute for Isaac. That instead of Isaac being killed, God says, don't touch your son. Kill this ram instead. And that theme pulls us through. And then as we go a little farther, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau and Jacob are at war from the very start. And if you were picking sides, you would say, wow, Jacob is unbearable. You would not want your kid to hang out with Jacob. Like, look at that spoiled little brat. Don't play with him. God said, I choose this one. Because God doesn't care who you are or where you've been or what you've done. God says, I'm going to change you from the inside out. You would look at somebody like that and you would say, getting raised as spoiled as he was raised and having the personality he's got, he could never change. But we know that's not true. We know God's a change maker. Jacob then, and I, I told you before, it's in alphabetical order. That makes it easy, doesn't it? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, Joseph. Still in alphabetical order. You've got it. Now, God gets a hold of Israel, changes his name to Israel, changes his name from supplanter to governed by God. But he's really got to get his attention, doesn't he? Breaks his hip, knocks his hip out of joint. Some of you, that's the point that God is at, is where he's really going to have to wrestle you to the ground to get your attention. Don't make him do that. As we read about it, you know, we pointed out how Israel thought he was following God. Jacob thought he was following God. He, 
He said, I give you, I send Esau all my cows. I send Esau all my goats. I send Esau all this. And we talked about how oftentimes when we sing to God, we sing, I surrender all. What we really mean is, I surrender all the goats. I surrender all the cows. I surrender all my stuff. But what God wants is not your stuff. God wants you. And that is the one thing that Jacob was not willing to send across the river until God came and wrestled him to the ground and took him over. And when God did that, he changed his name. He said, no more shalt thou be called Jacob, but Israel. Changed his name because he changed his heart. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob changed to Israel. Israel then, now a man of God, although still imperfect, goes on. He has 12 sons, one daughter. And those 12 sons more or less become the 12 tribes of Israel. Not exactly. You know, Joseph gets two tribes. But essentially, his family becomes the nation that God says, I will use to change the world. One of those boys, the second born, we meet and find out he is an awful man. He wants to take his daddy's favorite, Joseph, and sell him into slavery, and does. Oh, they want to kill him first. But then he says, well, let's sell him into slavery and make a profit instead. So they take Joseph's and they sell him into Egypt. They take his coat of many colors that his father had made for him and they put blood on it so that his father will think that he's died. Now that's a dirty trick to play on Jacob because you remember Jacob had put um, animal skin on himself to fool his brother. You know, he, he finally reaps what he sowed in that. And he's brokenhearted. And Joseph is carried off into slavery, 17 years old. He's put in Potiphar's house, and we remember, what, what was the key word of that, the key phrase? The Lord was with him. God blessed him, and he came up to the top of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife, though, goes and tries to seduce Joseph. Fails, because he's a man of character. But one day is still able to submit a false accusation and get him thrown into prison. But, here, if I, I've said this probably a hundred times now, but let me, get, let me remind you again. Potiphar had every right and had every responsibility to have Joseph killed for trying to rape his wife. But Joseph was the kind of man, he led the kind of life where when those kind of accusations were put up against him, Potiphar couldn't believe it. He had to do something because of what his wife said, but he didn't believe it, so he put him in prison instead, the prison that Potiphar was in charge of. Now again, Christian, live the kind of life where when people accuse you of sin, no one believes it. If you are always flirting with the edge, everyone's going to believe that you fell, whether you really did or not. But if you will live above reproach, those kind of accusations will have no power over you. If rumors are spreading about you and you don't like them, make sure that your life is so radically different than that that those rumors have no credibility. No one believes it. We talked about Joseph was vulnerable. He was in the house alone with Potiphar's wife. You know, people of the opposite sex together in a private place like that is asking for trouble one way or the other. He uh, didn't have a choice. He worked there. He's a slave. But nevertheless, he goes in. He, has, he uh, interprets dreams for the baker and the butler. Um, then he's forgotten, although God did not forget him. The butler did. Until Pharaoh has a dream. And the butler says, oh, I know a man who can interpret dreams. And they call Joseph up from the prison. Joseph interprets the dream and says, there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. You need to set a man up to run over this. 
Pharaoh says, who is a wiser man than you? And Joseph becomes the leader of all things in Egypt. Pharaoh says, the only thing I worry about is myself, my throne. He said, you take care of the rest. Meanwhile, Joseph's brothers are, of course, starving back in uh, Canaan. They come to Egypt asking for, to buy food. Joseph tests them to see if their hearts have changed. When their hearts have truly changed, he brings them back. And Judah has become the leader. We skipped over it, and we are going to go over it. Uh, I've had a difficult time planning our series because Colleen's going to have a baby at some point. And I want to make sure that we get done. That's why we're finishing Genesis today, and we're going to go play cleanup on some stories we skipped over later. But Judah um, had sex with a prostitute, he thought, who was actually his daughter-in-law, and uh, gave her his staff and got caught and embarrassed and everything. And that, that really caught his attention. That's when he was changed, was when his sin was found out. So one dangerous prayer to pray is, Lord, help me overcome this sin, because sometimes the best way God has to do that is to expose it. You bring it into the light, and suddenly it's got no power. Now, maybe that's exactly what you need to do. But I don't know about you. I would rather expose my sin on my own terms by confessing than have it exposed. That's something to bear in mind. Judah then changed man. He leads his brothers into Egypt. Father and son are reunited, and as we studied last week, Israel is now ready to die. Now ready to die, he makes his arrangements with his family. He sets himself up with God. And now laying on his deathbed, he's leaned over his staff in worship because he's too weak to kneel. And now laying on his de- or sitting on his deathbed, he comes and he makes these blessings on each of his sons. But the blessing that is so important, which we cannot miss, is the blessing of Judah. The great, 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 I lost count, 40 greats, grandfather of Jesus. Look at this. Verse 8, Genesis chapter 49. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal to unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes." His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you so much for the privilege of your word. We thank you that here in the book of Genesis, we see your heart. We see that you're not concerned with the multitudes, but that you have a faithful remnant who you will use to save the world. That you chose unlikely people like Abraham, who was childless and helpless. Like Jacob, who lacked character like Joseph, who was a slave rejected by his brothers, and that you used them to bring your son, the most unlikely choice of all, a baby born to grow up and save the world through crucifixion. I just ask, Father, now that you would impress these truths on our heart as we study your word today, that you would change us through it to be more like your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. I just tell you, this uh, section is so beautiful. It's broken into three parts. Each of the three parts includes Judah's name. It says, uh, 
Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Judah is a lion's whelp. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The oracle, the, the prophecy here that Jacob gives at the end of his life is broken into three things about Judah. Three things about Judah. Now, these things are not fulfilled in Judah's life. These things are fulfilled in the life of Judah's true son, Jesus. So look back at verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Here, I want you to notice something really ironic. Judah rejected Joseph because Joseph said that all of them were going to bow down to him. Now, if I were God, I would give Joseph a double portion by taking the portion away from Judah. I'd say, if you don't want to do that, then you know, you're out. But God, in his grace, says, even though you've rebelled here against my plan, I'm still going to use you to raise up a leader. You are not too far gone to be used by God. <laughs> Judah here is being given the very thing. Each of these oracles will go back to one of Judah's sins. And here, the very thing was that he rejected this idea that Joseph would be the leader, but God is still going to raise up a leader from him. To the Old Testament, when they read this, they thought, wow, he raised up King David from Judah. And that was impressive. But we know that from the tribe of Judah, he raised up the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, you've heard people say, God can turn your mess into a message. Well, here it is. Judah here rejected God's plan, but God said, I'm going to grab a hold of you and I'm going to turn it around. <laughs> Even though you've sinned, because you've repented, now I'm going to change you and I'm going to use you for my glory. Look, when is this fulfilled? Well, keep your finger here, but go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. He says, of course, he had said in, the, in Genesis that he was going to crush his enemies. He was going to have his hand on their neck, driving them down, and his brothers were going to come to worship him. Then in Revelation 11, verse 15, he says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You stop for a minute there. There's coming a day where the lion of the tribe of Judah will crush Satan and all of his enemies under his feet. And he will take up authority once and for all, and he will reign forever and ever. Let me read the next two verses to you. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God. That's the right response when you hear this, by the way. Fall on your face and worship God. He's saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. He said, Lord, we praise you because you've taken your power back. You have overthrown the usurping kingdoms. You've overthrown that rebellion that we talked about that started way back. And you have now set up your kingdom. You have begun to reign. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom is imminent. It's here in one sense, in your heart now, but it's imminent that it will come, that he will take up his kingdom and begin to reign. Go back to Genesis then. And that, the first thing there that we see him as is the Lord. <laughs> the lion of the tribe of Judah will be the Lord. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? But he says here, he says, Judah is like a lion. 
He's like a lion. He's like a cub. He's gone down to the prey and devoured it. Stooped down and laid down like a full lion. But even a lion that's sleeping, who will raise him up? Now, here again, it's fulfilled in Jesus. I'll give it to you. Jesus here went and died on the cross once and for all, crushing the powers and principalities. He laid down in the grave with his work finished, but rose up again as a conquering king. Do not goad the lion. You know, here he's saying, Judah, people will be as afraid to mess with you as they would be afraid to mess with a wild lion. Well, if people understood God, they would be as afraid to tempt God as they are to mess with a lion. You know, there's a, this power there. But people are not, right? We don't understand what God is like. We don't understand how great and powerful God is. When's this fulfilled? Revelation 5, verse 5. He says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Here they've cried out, Who's able to open up the scroll, the title deed of the world? One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, when John's been weeping, that no one is worthy to open the book. One of the elders says, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals said, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So who is the lion's whelp that was raised up again, that was prophesied? It was Jesus Christ. But then there's a tension there in the very next verse, isn't there? Verse 6, he says, and I, behold, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders, who was there standing on the throne being worshipped by all the saints of all the ages, stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, which sent forth into all the earth. Here's what I want you to see. They're looking for a lion, and there is a lamb that's been slain. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's Jesus, the one who was slain. He's the one who rose up and now comes in power. It's the fulfillment of all these things. Now, what does that have to do with the uh, context in Genesis? What does Genesis lay out there? One, God's government overthrown in Eden, is reinstituted by the son of Judah. Two, what we're reading about here, they're in Egypt, where every Israelite who read Genesis know they were going to spend 400 years there in slavery. And yet, there was a lion coming to break their bonds. There was a lion coming who could not be tamed, who could not be withheld. It was this image, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, that C.S. Lewis used when he describes God as a lion. Aslan the lion. And uh, one of the children in that book, when they first meet uh, Aslan, who of course, again, is a representation of Jesus, says, is he a tame lion? And it says, no, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. God is not tame. <laughs> you know, God is not your pet. God is not someone you can control by saying the right incantations or doing the right things. Jesus is not your subordinate, but he is good. We see he is the Lord. He is the lion. Next verse here, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That means rulership will not leave Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. He says there will be a continuous 
lineage of rulers and lawgivers descended from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, the one that is to come, until that one that you're looking for, the one that was promised way back in Genesis 3. Until that one comes, there will always be a lineage. Now, there is no descendant of Judah sitting on the throne in Israel today because Shiloh has come. The one who is to come has come. So Jewish people that are still looking for the Messiah to come later, here's the question. Where is the ruler or the lawgiver from Judah? Well, there isn't one. Well, then Shiloh must have already come. The one who is to come must have already come and taken up the throne. Not the way they expected, of course. He says, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. All the people will be brought to him. It wasn't Solomon where the people were divided. It wasn't anybody in history except the one who said, if I am raised up on the cross, I will draw all men unto myself. He says, binding his fowl unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. Here is just an image of extreme prosperity to start with. When, if, you are, uh, if you tie your donkey to a vine, what's your donkey going to do? It's going to eat all the grapes. The, dis- the thing here is that Judah's descendant was going to be so prosperous, it didn't bother him. He could, he could tie his donkey up to the vine and let it eat all the grapes. But more than that, where do we see a donkey? Where do we see a colt? When Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the conquering king on Palm Sunday, he comes in and he rides in. He rides to the vine, Israel, God's vineyard, to proclaim himself the king. He ties himself to it. So there's this double image. Immediately they would understand prosperity, but with the benefit of the New Testament, we know who he is. Verse 11, the end of it here. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now a lot of commentators say, you know, well, it means that he's going to be so wealthy that he can use wine like wash water. That's certainly part of it. But the blood of grapes, that changes the meaning of it a little bit, doesn't it? Why would he use blood? We know, what does blood look like? What does wine look like? It looks like blood. It's going to soak his garments in blood. One of the most stunning passages in Scripture is in Isaiah 60 where God comes in with his white garments soaked in blood. And he says, no one else would come, so I came myself. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So it talks about it immediately. You read it and you think it's the blood of God's enemies. But as you read through Isaiah 60, you realize it's the blood of the one who became his enemy. It's his own blood. It's the blood of his son soaking his garments. If people say that uh, Christianity is cosmic child abuse, uh, to which the only thing we can plead is guilty, (laughs) that yes, God did wish infinite torment on his son. And we understand, of course, in the perfect union of the Trinity, Jesus desired to become the sacrifice for the world, but he's broken, bloodied, crushed. So this one who came from Judah would not only be a powerful king, He would not only be a lion. He would not only be the Lord, but he would be a lamb. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Again, this speaks to prosperity. He says he'll be up to his eyes in wine, up to his mouth in milk. 
he's going to have so much. You know, red to us, um, you know, you think, oh, his eyes are going to be bloodshot because he's going to be a drunkard. That's not the word in Hebrew is dark. Uh, it's not. It's like a dark red. Like uh, Esau was called red. Um, it's not. Esau was not carpet red. Esau was dark. Now, where does this come to light? Revelation chapter seven, verse fourteen. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. And that's where we're going to close, so you can take your thumb out of Genesis if you want. And one of the elders answered me, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? One of the elders turns to John and says, Who are these people that are dressed in white? Where did they come from? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He says, John says, You know. You don't need me to tell you. And he said, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You say, Well, if I wash something in wine, it's not going to make it white, it's going to make it red. <laughs> I don't, um, don't drink, so wine stains are not a problem for me. But if I, I have coffee stains are a big problem in my life. And I know if I tried to wash a shirt in coffee, it would not turn the shirt white. And I imagine, based on the commercials for OxyClean, that if you washed a shirt in wine, it would not turn it white. You'd probably never be able to get it white again. I do know blood stains are hard to get out. I don't know. I used to have nosebleeds when I was little. It's hard to get out of blood out of clothes. But the blood of the lamb is different. The blood of the lamb takes something that you do not think should be able to cleanse you. You say, why would Jesus' suffering be able to cleanse me? Why would blood ever be able to make anything white? And it makes it as white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, shall make them like snow. He says, so here's, here's the big finish. From Judah would come one who would be the Lord. You know, we cannot get around that. He is the Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is your master. If you are in rebellion against the king from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, you want to know why people go to hell. What is the punishment for treason? You say, well, it's just a little sin. Well, here's what I want you to understand. If I commit a little, if I do something that's small, um, General Petraeus, we'll use him as an example. He told somebody something. He told a secret. He told his mistress a secret. Telling somebody a secret is a small sin. But that secret was a state secret, so it was treason, so he lost his career and lost everything he had. If we'd been in wartime, he would have been jailed and maybe even killed. Because of who the crime was against. You say, well, I've just done some little things. But if Jesus is the king, those little things are treason. And now the penalty is infinite. He's the Lord. You have to, to be saved, you have to repent of your sins and say, Lord... I know that I have been in rebellion against you. I know that I have been at war 
with your son. A lion who came from Judah would crush his enemies. But then you say, I know he's the lion. I know he's the one who can come and tear up the enemies in my life. You say, I just don't have any power over sin. I just don't know how I could change my temper. I just don't know how I could. I just don't know how I could. If God is the Lord and you're not your own God, that lion can come and tear those sins to pieces. There's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such is common to man. But in every temptation, God provides a way to escape. You may be able to bear it. There's a God can come and tear that to pieces like a lion's prey. Sin has been crushed. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. See that? Now, the Lord, the lion. But if you're going to come to Jesus, you have got to come to him as the lamb. You've got to come and say, my garments are filthy. I've been rolling around in the mud. I've been places that I shouldn't be doing things I shouldn't do. And I can never get this stain out. And it doesn't make any sense to me that the Son of God's suffering would substitute for me. It doesn't make any sense to me that God would send his son through the line of a childless old man, a rebellious grandson, a slave. It doesn't make any sense to me that a baby born in a manger would be my only hope. It doesn't make any sense to me that you can wash things white in blood. But I believe that with the agony that Jesus suffered, that he can make me clean. Nothing else can make you clean this morning. Nothing else can ever make you clean. Well, I've been trying to do good works. I'm a church member. I was baptized. Those things do not change. Those things are important. But they do not change you. They do not wash deep enough. He says, these are they who have come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white. Thank you. 
time to say, my robes are filthy, I would never be allowed in. 